Good afternoon. I'm Leon Davis. It's uh, Saturday, June the 16th, 2 o'clock. And I am a, a history, a, a fan of history. And by studying history, it helps me to understand people's thinking, knowing where they started and where they ended. I can pretty much piece together their thought processes. So in creating my podcast, I try to add a little bit of history. Uh, and then before I talk about current events, and that hopefully will add some perspective perspective to the topic and uh, that I'm trying to cover. Today, I would like to try to cover foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy. Now, uh, last week I did um, immigration and I wasn't really quite happy with the, the show. So I'm going to start today's show and go back, just do a kind of a refresher about some of the things that I talked about and uh, bring up one point that I missed bringing up in that show, um, and we'll get started right now. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Alrighty. Um, hopefully, uh, the me covering last week will be really quick, and then. <clears throat> I can uh, get into foreign affairs, uh, foreign policy, pardon me. And uh, but I do want to make note that uh, I will be taking my summer break over the month of July uh, and early August. So after the June 30th episode, which uh, is next couple of weeks. Yeah, next couple of weeks, the June 3rd, after the June 30th episode, uh, I will be. Um, not doing podcasts until the next podcast will be August the 18th. So uh, I did want to mention that. So quickly to go over um, a, a quick refresher about what I talked about last week is uh, that some people felt that the uh, immigration system was broken. And I don't think that the immigration system is broken. Um, it is what we make it and we can change how we implement the, the um, um, immigration system so that um, by using terms like broken, where people are trying to steer the conversation and um, vilify how we're doing immigration, um, hopefully our politics will start to change and it won't be so adversarial. Um, we do so many things on an adversarial type basis, um, left, right, conservative. You know, we just we have a two party system and um, that's always going to bump heads because we don't try to include nuance in our discussions about whatever. It's either either on or off, uh, up or down, pro or negative. And that always that I can say always, but that tends to make us become more adversarial and can cause we can overlook a lot of uh, different viewpoints in between. But hopefully that uh, I mean, it's I guess it's we've, it's gotten us this far. Um, whether we continue to use it is something we should probably um, talk about. Um, what I did mention last week is what are the conditions that would push people from their homes and the only environment that they have known 
to chase some mythical future. Some, you know, what would cause someone who born in a particular area and grew up and became an adult there had children to pick up their family, um, their belongings and move from what they've known. And that should be something that we include or at least take a look at when we implement our um, immigration policy. Um, One of the things that has been come up uh, quite a bit about um, our immigration policy is um, allowing immigrants or uh, encouraging immigration or even legal legal immigration based on uh, someone's skills. That basically comes down to that we drain other communities of their brain power and then we don't offer them any return. So basically, if you want to come to the United States, um, you either be able to bring something uh, with you that is going to be beneficial um, that we can clearly see before allowing you in, because a lot of times there are people who migrate here who have a determination to work and be better citizens and they bring something after they get here rather than before. But um, we're trying to implement a, uh, or many people are trying to implement a policy based on what are your skills now? Um, When we do that, as I, I mentioned, we're draining brain power from other communities uh, because people are having are moving because life is untenable for them where they are. So we take the best uh, and then we offer them nothing in return so that even if their community starts to rebound, they have a much harder path to solvency because we've our other countries have drained the higher performing or higher trained um, people from those communities. Now, one of the unique attributes of our society um, is that foreign policy and immigration um, can change every four years by having a presidential election every four years and having election of officials in four to six years, our immigration and um, foreign policy um, behavior is fluid. That means it can change and that becomes difficult for people outside the country. I can say difficult, but it does. It's an additional challenge for people outside the country to see a consistent policy and know how to interact with the United States. So um, if immigration is more lax under a president and then the following administration just four or eight years later becomes much more strict in their interpretation of uh, immigration, people who may have gotten information that that is outdated, which is quite possible, especially in an area that's hard hit by, um, you know, lack of resources, no internet. Um, um, You've got uh, bad people in the area that uh, 
don't allow you to get to information. So you, you're going to have bad information and you're going to, to think, um, I'll head towards United States to try to, you know, regroup and, um, at least survive so that I can maybe want to come back and help my community. But because, as I mentioned, we have the shifting of, um, policy. We potentially have the shifting of policy every four to eight years. Um, someone could show up on our doorsteps and be turned away uh, because the policy has shifted. Now they're in a much more precarious situation because they've left everything that they've known to, to try to seek a better life. And then they're caught into a system that is not favorable for them. Um, so my, my thought is it would be beneficial for us as a country if we took a longer view of immigration and foreign policy so that um, though we administrations may change that, that way we don't allow one person or one party to be so dominant or so entrenched that we lose our ability to be flexible. Um, but it's at, at still putting forth a policies and um, behavior that um, that the rest of the world can count on. Um, one of the things I also talked about last week was people go where the resources are. Um, that is why urban areas have more people than less developed rural areas. Um, so people are going to immigrate or migrate to areas where there's opportunities, where there's resources. If we spread the resources out, if we, uh, less concentrate resources in areas, we can then support greater migration, greater uh, participation by people in um, all of the benefits of this country. Um, so, but we have a tendency because it's easier to, if we put everything in one place, it, it makes it simple to do things. So you don't have to go very far. You don't have to wait very long because um, we have a tendency to try to have uh, instant turnaround. Uh, you, you hear a lot about instant um, uh, instant gratification. Um, so, so getting things done at this very instant. So we put everything in small pockets, which become those major cities. And of course, to make all of that work, you have to have the workers, you have to have all of the resources necessary. And so we put it all in the small areas. Well, people have to go to those areas. Um, we have a lot of under, it is important that we do keep some areas less developed, but we can possibly spread things out a little more, um, to eliminate some of the congestion, to eliminate some of the, the problems that we have. Um, so one of the things that I didn't 
cover last week, which I, I really wanted to cover, was open borders. Um, people talk about open borders and that that's a, a, such a bad thing. And as I mentioned, people go where resources are. Um, the point of the border is, uh, and I did did talk about that last week, um, is that we have a certain political system in place and we have uh, certain rules that we follow in order to create the uh, environment that our citizens choose to live in. Um, in our current immigration situation, we, I, I'm curious as to how we try to, imp, how we try to um, help people to integrate into the society, or do we um, just leave it to the individual? So if you show up on our doorsteps, let's say you become other than the, the test you have to pass to become a citizen. Are there other things that we do to try to help integrate people, uh, immigrants into society? Um, the more one of the things that we always talk about, I, one of the things that's important is having tools that help people to adjust, whether it's. Uh, adjusting from going to prison or adjusting from recovering from um, medical maladies. Um, there's always got to there. Are, the, the success is going to be important if you have the right tools to help people move from the place of not meeting the minimum to getting them to uh, at least be able to function well. Um, the, the school system is designed, uh, should have been, uh, should be designed and should, is designed to help people to function in society. And it, we were changing, I read an article recently about uh, home ec disappearing. And there are a lot of curriculums that are being dropped that help people to adjust to society and the changes in society. Um, and, and that's another one of the things that we, I would like to talk about being education and how education is implemented in society. And does, does the system that the way it was originally designed still functioning well? Uh, but right now, um, are the do we have the tools that are in place to help uh, immigrants and citizens alike um, function well within uh, our society? So, uh, with that, I'm going to close uh, immigration for now. That may be something I might want to visit later, but uh, U.S. foreign policy. Um, and, I, and I'll give you a little bit of history. U.S. foreign policy for the first 50 years uh, of our independence was guided by the idea that the United States should observe political isolationism from European powers during peacetime and maintain strict neutrality during periods of war. 
military and financial alliance with France in 17 <clears throat> in 1778 the Treaty of Paris in 1783 was highly favorable to the United States and allowed westward expansion to the Mississippi River. In 1776, George Washington's final message uh, counseled against foreign entanglements. It went, Europe has a set of primary interests which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her policies or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enmities. Our detached and distant situation invites and enables us to pursue a different course. Now, the first Congress created the cabinet level Department of Foreign Affairs in 1789. On May 19, 1789, James Madison proposed the Department of Foreign Affairs under the leadership of a Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Thomas Jefferson returned from France to take the position. And then on September the 15th, 1789, Congress passed and enacted, uh, passed an act to provide for the safekeeping of the acts, records, and seal of the United States and for other purposes. But that law changed the name of the Department of Foreign Affairs to the Department of State under the leadership of the <clears throat> Secretary of State. And because that uh, was called the Secretary of State because of certain domestic duties uh, that were assigned also to the agency. By 1797, the French were openly seizing American ships, and this led to an undeclared war known as the Quasi War of 1798 and 99. The second U.S. president, John Adams, tried diplomacy, but that failed. And this eventually led to the Congress approving Adams' plan to organize the Navy. Through political unrest, Adams eventually made peace with France in 1800. Now, under the Constitution, the President of the United States determines U.S. foreign policy. The Secretary of State, which is appointed by the President with the advice and consent of the Senate, is the president's chief foreign affairs advisor. The Department of State, a cabinet level department, operates under the executive branch of the government and the constitution authorizes Congress to oversee but not establish U.S. foreign policy except by law and approval of war and treaties. In that capacity, congressional committees question department officials about matters of foreign policy international operations and other 
subjects as it sees fit. Current U.S. foreign policy goals, national security, world peace, secure global environment, maintaining a balance of power among nations, <clears throat> pardon me, and working with allies to solve international problems. Now, there are three tools to help facilitate U.S. foreign policy. Diplomacy, foreign aid, and military force. So some of the um, difficulties or some of the challenges that face that we face in our foreign policy, and one of them I mentioned earlier, was consistency across administrations. That because administrations change and um, a new administration comes into power, um, they may take a different tact or a, even a different direction in accomplishing foreign um, uh, and, and, and enacting our foreign policy. Now, a dramatic um, policy change will confuse allies and open opportunities to uh, non-allies uh, that the previous policies were able to keep in check. Uh, we do need to always re-examine our foreign policy to ensure that we are using the best tactics and information in implementing our foreign policies. Now, the government is not a business, and I don't say that as an attack point, but business has a different objectives than government. Um, businesses um, objectives are profit making. The government has an objective of security and money, though it may be a factor, it should not be necessarily the overriding um, idea behind the actions taken. Now, foreign policy that's based on uh, short-term economic gain, uh, such as in, in the recent um, situation with uh, North Korea, where um, there was a mention that we should eliminate the military exercises with South Korea because of the cost um, ignores a lot of other aspects of why those exercises may be important in that region. China is advancing to, uh, toward its goal of establishing administrative control over much of the South China, South China Sea. This trend is heightening regional concerns about the reliability of the United States and enhancing China's coercive leverage over the commercial and military activities of the surrounding countries. Now, it's, if it's left unabated, the cumulative effect of China's expanding influence in the South China Sea will make it, make it increasingly difficult for the United States to defend its interest in Southeast Asia. 
Now, U.S. security partners partnerships uh, will weaken and the U.S. military will be left with fewer access and presence agreements and neither regional regional institutions nor international law will substantially constrain China's behavior. Now, China has a working relationship um, and I, I have read uh, they have can't control or they leave um, Kim Jong-un a lot of latitude um, and, and, and I say leave a lot of attitude as if they were responsible for his behavior um, as an autonomous country. Uh, he is responsible for his behavior, but they do exert a lot of uh, influence or because of their being one of the largest trading partners um, with South Korea. Um, but China um, did not put Kim Jong-un's um, nuclear aspirations in check. They did not make that, uh, take that effort to uh, put pressure on him. So I don't know if, if, so I speculate, maybe they wanted to use that to their advantage in the area. Maybe there is some benefit to them that um, Kim Jong-un had a, a program, a nuclear program, and um, his efforts may have helped them in other ways. So, so they may have just used Kim Jong, the North Korean government, as, a, um, as an ally to accomplish what it is that they want to accomplish in the area. Now, despite recently closing hundreds of bases, the United States recently closed hundreds of bases in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we still maintain nearly 800 military bases in more than 70 countries and territories abroad, from um, small radar facilities uh, to giant installations. Uh, Britain, France, and Russia have about 30 foreign bases combined. I believe that this is not sustainable. It may not be sustainable. I don't want to say absolutely, but I believe it may not be sustainable, either from an economic standpoint or a physical one. If we cut our financial resources, such as cutting taxes, we limit our physical capabilities. Uh, we lim limit our financial capabilities by tightening our immigration policy. We could be limiting our physical capabilities. Um, it is important that we meet our um, requirements for implementing our foreign policy and, uh, and our foreign policy objectives along with our immigration uh, objectives, which I believe are closely related or closely linked um, because they do impact each other. Now, one alternative method is to uh, get greater support from our allies, which um, yeah, you have to give uh, Donald Trump some credit. He has mentioned that that we'd like for our uh, 
um, allies to step up and take greater um, effort in helping with uh, foreign policies, um, dealing with allies, with other allies and uh, adversaries. Um, it's just how you accomplish that that is going to be uh, difficult or the big challenge. Um, we need to build a consensus. These are all um, autonomous countries. And um, for the ones that are sympathetic to our goals, if we don't want to continue to have 800 or uh, close to 800 bases around the world, um, other people are going to have to step up. And if no one wants to help, um, we can't. It is going to be a significant challenge for us to be the world's police. Uh, an organization like the United Nations can be invaluable in this situation because the mere fact that nations and these are all independent nations, they're willing to sit down and have a conversation. Uh, it is that in and of itself is a monumental achievement. There is nothing specifically requiring these people or these countries to come together to try to solve global problems. Um, and it's good that that they're not taking that isolationists attitude because uh, the more we work together, the more likely we can accomplish things that does uh, allow for some additional um, difficulty because the more people you have in a room, the more opinions you have in the room and the greater chance uh, you're going to have ideas, but heads. Now, there are only three countries and I wanted to mention this uh, Burma, Liberia and the United States that have not adopted the international system of units, that's the metric system, as their official system of weights and measures. The dollar is the default trade currency currently, but it is facing a strong challenge against the Chinese yen. Uh, the United States is the second largest trade economy by trailing China by $3 billion. Um, and that our position as the second largest trading partner affects the quality of life in this country. If we choose isolationism, that could have a devastating impact on our trading ability or on our ability to create the quality of life that we're accustomed to. Um, North Korea has chosen, maybe I don't, um, has chosen isolationism, which makes it easier to implement trade barriers that impact the standard of living in that country. We have not moved to the uh, metric system because we're big enough to, we have an economy big enough where we can do without. And, and 
not throw a complete monkey wrench in the situation. Um, but if we isolate ourselves, if it's America first, America only, there's a possibility that that could change. Um, so for, for the next, uh, well, it's two years left in his term. And if he gets a second term, um, if we, if we get deep enough into that policy, uh, the concern would be how much, how much change would things change and how quickly we could change course. Um, a country changes course very, very slowly. Um, isolationism is not a foreign policy. It is an abdication of a country's global citizenship responsibilities. Also trying to be the world's police. And as I mentioned before, um, by trying to be the world's single-handedly force, police force, it's going to be fraught with problems and a, a, a huge financial burden. So we need to find common ground um, to at least begin a dialogue with um, uh, other countries uh, that are um, adversaries and that are um, allies because we, we don't want to go it alone. We've, we've had opportunities where we've, where we've taken opportunities to go it alone and um, that has created some blowback maybe not to the point of where we've caused pain but it at least has caused people to look twice at us and be concerned that we're playing by our own rules and not including everyone else in, in how we achieve things on a global scale. Um, I am going to, as I've gone a little bit over my time today, I'm going to pick this up next week. Uh, I've got a little bit more to talk about, but for right now, I am going to uh, call it on this one. Give me a second here. All righty. <laughs> All righty. Um, I'm going to have to do this one from memory. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Um, you can... Uh, replay this pod, video podcast on uh, YouTube search for Lion's Den STL the audio podcast is available on stitcher.com podcast.com uh, Wushka and the Google Music Play Store and the iTunes Store um, your likes, shares, and comments fuel the internet. So please like and share this video, this uh, podcast, uh, when you get a chance, or wherever you find it. And uh, I always like to tell you that um, remain cool, be cool, be calm, and above all, be careful. Please look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.